Hi, my name's Lauren Hartsmith, and I'm the Director of Regulatory Affairs at Advara. I am super excited to be joining the eighth episode of Advara in Conversations With. With that being said, I'll hand it over to Connie, my co-host for today, to introduce yourself. Thanks, Lauren. I am so glad we're doing this episode together. For those of you who are listening, I'm Connie Cullity, and I'm the Senior Director of Regulatory Compliance at Advara. So today, Connie and I are going to dive into the common rule. We're going to start by talking about what exactly the common rule is, how do FDA and HHS play into the structure of the common rule, and what does this rule really mean for sponsors, investigators, IRBs, and most importantly, what does it mean for the protection of clinical trial participants who are human research subjects? This is a topic near and dear to my heart. And I am so glad I get to kind of delve into the nitty gritty with everyone today. Lauren, I agree. I think this is a really interesting topic and one that I'm sure you and I could talk about all day. I'm ready to get started. All right, let's do this. Lauren, let's start by talking a little bit about the Department of Health and Human Services, HHS. How is it structured and what role does it have in clinical research? That is a really great question to to kick us off. So the Department of Health and Human Services, it's one of the administrative agencies within the federal government. What that basically means is Congress makes the laws and then the administrative agencies, they fill in the details about how we should be implementing these laws. And so HHS in particular, they deal with health human services. So that's a department that is considered the preeminent health experts, research-related experts, all that jazz. But there's several different other agencies, administrations, components that deal specifically with health and research-related areas. So one of the HHS components is the National Institutes of Health, NIH. Another component, Food and Drug Administration, Centers for Disease Control, or CDC. We also have CMS, so Center for Medicare and Medicaid Studies. All of these entities are actually part of the overall Department of Health and Human Services. So really HHS covers a broad spectrum of health and research. So I guess that's a great lead in to digging into what is the role of the FDA and how is it related to HHS? I know I I just mentioned that FDA is part of HHS, but Connie, could you give us a little bit more background about that? Oh, sure. So Lauren, you mentioned about the components of HHS, right? And FDA being one of them. FDA, in terms of its role, it plays such a big part in the everyday life of US consumers, including making sure that the foods that we eat are safe and making sure that the drugs that we take, prescription drugs and those that are available over the counter, that those drugs are safe and effective too. But today, we're just going to focus on FDA's role in clinical research. And when I talk about FDA's role, you might hear me use the terms clinical trials or clinical investigations. They all mean the same thing. And that is research that involves testing a medical product in a person. So I think very simply, you can look at FDA's role in clinical research as twofold helping to ensure data reliability 
and helping to ensure that human subjects who are enrolled in FDA-regulated clinical research are adequately protected in terms of their rights, their safety, and their welfare. When I say data reliability, I'm talking about the reliability of the results of the clinical trials and being able to confidently rely on them. I think that's particularly important for FDA's use in making decisions about whether to approve a new drug based on trial data. And in talking about FDA's role, I'd also like to tell you a little bit about how FDA actually carries out its role. And there are a number of ways that FDA does that. The first one is through regulations that are specific to the conduct of clinical research. The regulations are requirements. I think you can look at them as a type of rule book for the parties who are involved in research that FDA regulates. And in terms of the parties involved, here again, I'm talking about sponsors, contract research organizations, clinical investigators, IRBs, and the FDA. In terms of the specific regulatory requirements, I'll give just a few examples of them. So for sponsors, the FDA requirements include things like monitoring their investigations that the clinical investigators are conducting and making safety reports to FDA and to those clinical investigators. The sponsor requirements also apply to contract research organizations to the extent that they're taking on any sponsor responsibilities, which they often do. Then when it comes to the clinical investigators, the people who actually conduct the research, FDA has requirements for them too. And those include, and here are just some examples, um, needing to have IRB oversight, IRB approval for their study before they start to conduct it and during the conduct of it. Also generally needing to get consent from the subjects before enrolling them in the study and also keeping accurate records that reflect their conduct of the study. So those are just a few examples. And then in terms of FDA itself, FDA directly conducts inspections of those parties. Again, sponsors, investigators, IRBs, CROs. The purpose of the FDA inspections is to assess data reliability, to assess the adequacy of protections of the human subjects who've been enrolled, and also to assess general compliance with the regulations that apply to that party that's being inspected. In terms of the timing, FDA inspections can take place during a study or even after it's completed. So those are all things that FDA has a role in. Also, in looking at the ways in which FDA has a role, I think we can look at that in another way, in terms of where FDA fits in at the different stages of clinical research. So let's use a pharmaceutical drug development example. Let's say you have a pharmaceutical company that's developed a new drug and they want to study it in humans. So how do they go about doing that? They create a protocol, which is a document that contains the specific plans for how the drug will be studied in people. And if the study's done under what's called an investigational new drug application, an IND, then the protocol gets submitted to FDA before it's carried out, and FDA reviews it to ensure that it's adequately designed and that it's protective of human subjects. 
And if FDA has any significant concerns about the study, they can require the study sponsor, in this example, the pharmaceutical company, to hold off on starting the study until the sponsors addressed FDA's concerns. Technically, that's called a clinical hold. If the sponsor thinks their data show that the drug works, that it's safe and it's effective, the sponsor could submit data to FDA in support of a new drug application, which is an application to allow the sponsor to sell the drug. FDA would then review the data that are submitted and decide whether they actually do support approval of the drug, whether FDA agrees with the sponsor, the applicant technically in this case, and then FDA would go ahead and approve the drug if the data show that the drug is safe and effective. So Lauren, let's get back to HHS now and start to talk about the common rule. What exactly is the common rule and what does it really mean for research and for the protection of human subjects? So that is a really great question. And the, the common rule, so the technical name for the common rule is the federal policy for the protection of human subjects. So essentially, HHS was responsible for passing some regulations in the 80s, and that regulation was specific to HHS. And after those regulations were passed, there was an initiative to have more agencies and departments across the federal government agree to also pass the same regulations for the research that they, that they were sponsoring or that they were conducting. So it's called the common rule because there are, as of this recording, there are 20 departments and agencies across the federal government, you know, including HHS, that, that have passed and promulgated the exact same regulations. And so there's a common framework that's being used across the federal government. HHS is considered kind of the lead agency on it, but the common rule is updated and implemented, you know, with collaboration across the federal government here. So in terms of what this means for the protection of human subjects research, I think one thing that's really cool here is it means that there's a consistent set of standards applied, you know, regardless of whether DOD is funding research or whether NIH is funding research. And I think that that consistency is really important and in a lot of ways helps to protect human subjects because there are consistent expectations and you know education efforts about what it means to be a research participant. It means that, that individuals participating, again, similar expectations, these education efforts, you know, they apply across the vast majority of research conducted in this country. And I think that's, that's super important. So in terms of what the common rule covers, I would say that when thinking about the common rule, the big areas of human subjects protection that it, that it tackles. So it really governs the structure and function of ethics committees. And though the technical term for that is institutional review board or IRB, the common rule really sets out how these, how these ethics committees or IRBs need to be organized, what their role is, what things should they be looking at when they're assessing research. And then it also lays out the informed consent requirements. So one of the cornerstones of research ethics is that people who are participating need to know what they're getting into. And you also have to give them a fair and reasonable opportunity to consider the research, to ask questions, to decide for themselves whether or not they want to participate. And also, if they decide at a later point that they no longer want to participate, to let folks 
you know, leave research activities freely. So those are probably the two biggest things that the, the common rule is overseeing and is regulating. Thanks, Lauren. I think that was a great recap. I have another question. I was wondering about a high-level history of the common rule. So really, the, the history of the common rule, I think, in terms of the modern history of, of our research ethics framework, I think you gotta, we got to start in 1932, which is when the United States Public Health Service, or USPHS, when they began the Tuskegee syphilis study. So you might've heard you know, of people referencing, oh, this is the Tuskegee study. So, so 1932 is when that famous study began. And initially the, the role of the Tuskegee study, it was really, I think one way to characterize it is it was really a public health observation study of the progression of syphilis in black men in a specific part of the country, right? So at that point, you know, I think there might've been some medical tests and medical procedures that the participants needed to undergo as part of the study that they wouldn't have necessarily received. But in general, I think it's, it's pretty fair to say that how syphilis was treated in these men, it was consistent with what would have happened to them outside of the study. One of the big problems is, you know, whether or not really, whether or not the participants really agreed to participate. I think it's, it's also fair to say that they weren't really given an opportunity to agree or disagree, and they weren't told all the information about the study or why it was being conducted. So from the get-go, there were some ethical problems. But keep in mind that as of 1932, the U.S. did not have, you know, a robust research ethics framework and review structure. So there were, there were expectations that studies would be ethical, but there really wasn't a framework for how that would be ensured. So fast forward about a decade, and you know at that point, science has progressed, and there are now effective treatments for syphilis. So this is where things get really, really unfortunate. And these men, they were never told about the treatment options. And the reason for that, you know, according to historical documentation, is that the purpose of the study was to evaluate the progression of syphilis in humans. And so if these men received treatment, then they wouldn't, then the researchers wouldn't have been able to get to their desired end goal of doing autopsies on folks who had died after having long-term syphilis and seeing how it affected the brain. So really, you know, again, this is terrible, but but it's part of our history. And this is just one of the, the most prominent examples of kind of egregious research practices. So this study, it goes from 1932 until the 70s. So this was an extraordinarily long-term study. In 1972, knowledge of the Tuskegee syphilis study became widespread. So again, the study was started in 1932. It really wasn't until 72 that, that the public really learned about it. And understandably, there was huge outcry once reporters started reporting on this. And so there was the Health Education and Welfare Department, that's the earlier version of HHS. So Health Education and Welfare, they convened a Tuskegee Syphilis Study Advisory Panel, and they tried to dig into the issues. And then in 1973, that's when I think there was general consensus that there needed to be some kind of federal level consistent framework on how we would handle research in this country. So in 1973, Congress began to debate research ethics legislation, and in 1974, they passed the 
National Research Act. And that was the beginning of what I like to call the modern research ethics framework. So once, once the, the high level structure, right, uh, this goes back to what I said before, of Congress kind of gives us these laws that are typically very high level, and then the administrative agencies and departments are responsible for filling in the details and working out the nitty gritty. So 1974 Research Act, after that, there was a National Commission for the Protection of Human Subjects that was called for in the National Research Act. That commission spent several years studying issues related to research ethics and ethical principles and whether research should be permitted in specific populations like with prisoners or children or those who were institutionalized as mentally infirm. That was the term that was used at the time. They established what we call the Belmont Report that outlines the, the main ethical principles that, that research in this country would be governed by. And then once all of those reports and the ethical principles had been published, that was when the health education and welfare and the FDA, they started publishing and promulgating their regulations on specifically how the research ethics framework would be structured and specifically how IRBs should operate and function. So I believe FDA's regs, you know, they, they started working on theirs in the mid 70s. And then the HHS regs, they started working on those in the late 70s. The first iteration was early 80s. And then all through the 80s, HHS and a number of other departments and agencies, again, what we call the common rule agencies, they worked together to develop a model policy that the various federal agencies could adopt. And then in 1991, the common rule was promulgated. So it's a really great example of different agencies with different perspectives working together for a common goal. And so 1991, we get the common rule that's, you know, it's kind of a, a landmark document that really, again, tells IRBs how they're supposed to function, how they should be composed, what things do IRBs need to verify are appropriate in all research studies, what is informed consent, what should be disclosed to subjects in research studies, and all that jazz. And so between 1991 and 2017, the common rule remained unchanged. And so that's a little over 30 years or so. And research, understandably, between 1991, if you think about all of the advances in technology and all of the advances in communication, the way the research enterprise worked in 1991, very different than the way the research enterprise works now. So there was recognition for a long time that the common rule needed to be revisited and updated to make sure that the considerations and the requirements of the common rule were consistent and appropriate for the types of research that we're doing now and how we're doing that. But again, there was a, a very long period of time where the common rule remained static. Lauren, thanks for all of that information. I have to say, you know, hearing you talk about the history of it, and I will say I am not generally a big history buff, but I think about how much the regulations are used and how important they are. And for those who aren't aware of the history, I think it really helps to shed light on why they're so important, as opposed to, you know, just being maybe some people might see them as hurdles or, oh, you know, I have to deal with regulations. Why is it? And that history is just so important to it. And it's amazing that it's a 
fairly young history. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Going back to our little history lesson, 1991 is when the common rule is passed. That's the body of regulations that that researchers are working with basically from 1991 until mid 2010s. And then as we know, we've had a lot of other big changes since 2019 with the COVID pandemic. And so, you know, there's just been even more changes in the, in the research landscape. Thinking about the big areas of change, though, I I said that there were over a hundred changes total in the common rule, which is huge. But I would say that the big areas of change and where we saw the most changes was in the requirements for informed consent. There are certain research activities that the common rule specifically says, okay, you know, we recognize that these activities are technically research, but we've made the decision that these activities do not need to be subject to all of the requirements of the common rule. So we call these exemptions. So the exemption categories were expanded, mostly related to reusing data and reusing biospecimens that had been collected for other purposes, making that type of low-risk research, removing administrative hurdles on that type of low-risk research in certain circumstances. And then also a new concept that we call exclusions that was also introduced in the common rule. So the, the exclusions are specific research activities that were deemed not to be considered research. That was a new concept in the revised common rule. And then one of the final big changes I would say is it's this concept, single IRB review. So essentially what that means is think about how today you'll hear about a study and then you'll hear, oh, the study was conducted at, you know, this list of 10, 15 hospitals or universities, right? And so in those situations, the way that things previously worked is that at each of those hospitals or institutions, their local institutional review board would look at the study and would consider the ethics. And what this single IRB requirement in the revised common rule says is that for most research that's conducted at more than one site, there needs to be just one official IRB that's doing the main review and that's coordinating between the different sites. And the idea is that to help reduce variation between the sites, and of course, the the different sites still play a huge role in doing local reviews and making sure that special considerations related to their particular location or the community that's likely to be enrolled right, that those considerations are are taken into account and that they're communicated to the central IRB. But the idea is that if you change the structure around a little bit and you have one main IRB and then other IRBs perhaps that are focused on just specific areas, that you can improve efficiency and also improve the overall oversight of the study and through that improve subject protections. So I would say those are the big areas of change in the revised common rule. So switching gears a little bit, but still talking about the common rule, what would you say are the potential challenges that sponsors, investigators, and IRBs face with the revised common rule? Ooh, that's a, that's a good one. So I think I alluded to this a little bit in stressing the various timelines involved here. So The original common rule was passed in 1991. And then really from 1991 until 2019, that's the set of rules that the research enterprise was really built around. And so as you can imagine, 
you have a lot of institutions and companies and businesses that, that were built around one set of rules and then those rules changed. And a lot of those changes were important. And, and I don't think that anybody was arguing that the changes weren't important and that modernizing the common rule was important. But balancing that need with the fact that it would mean a lot of big changes in business models and also just in how the research enterprise is structured. So I think, you know, and this is, this is kind of broad, but just the fact that institutions had to generally switch gears a little bit and get used to new requirements and new ways of doing things when things had been, you know, at least the rules that folks had been operating under had been the same since 1991. We're really only three years into the implementation of the common rule. So I would say that that's probably been one of the biggest challenges. And then another thing that I think is generally challenging at this point is that So folks had to start complying with the common rule really in 2019, but the way the common rule was set up, it wasn't that all research that was still active needed to all of a sudden be in compliance with the revised common rule. Really what happened in the beginning of 2019 is that any new research from a certain date forward needed to comply with the revised common rule and all of the active studies that were, they might've started 10, 15 years before that kind of date cutoff, but that those research activities, they could still continue to operate under the old rule. But as you can imagine, there's still a huge volume of research then that's under the old requirements. And like I said, over a hundred changes in the new rule or in the, the revised common rule. So really it's super challenging. I think for institutions, basically they have to understand how two different rules work and they have to understand how to be in compliance with two different sets of regulations that are, you know, very similar, but still different. And I think working in that dual environment is, is a challenge. Thanks, Lauren. That was, I think, really helpful for me to hear. And I'm sure to uh, whoever's out there listening, you gave us a lot of takeaways. So Connie, it's been so awesome to talk with you about the ins and outs of the common rule and how FDA is structured and the history behind these regulations and also what the common rule really means for clinical research and research participants. So thank you so much for doing this with me today. And I hope that in the future, we can continue the conversation. Oh, Lauren, that would be great. I've really enjoyed doing this with you today too. And with that, we conclude the eighth episode of Advara in Conversations With. If you enjoyed today's discussion, keep a lookout on Advara's social channels and on advara.com for our next episode. 